My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And today I am going to be continuing with the long overdue Criterion Roundups. Now I have fallen way behind on these episodes and I am acutely aware that there is some catching up to do. So this episode is going to be an omnibus edition in which I'm going to be taking a look at the June and July releases. After that, hopefully next week, I will put out the August episode. And then at the end of this month, I will put out the releases for September. I haven't actually ordered last month's releases yet, so uh, there might be a little bit of delay. Hopefully they will come in time and I'll be able to get out um, the September releases episode by the end of this month. But uh, I have to have to wait and see how the post comes. It's really annoying, actually, because um, sometimes when I order the discs, they arrive like a few days later. Sometimes they seem to take weeks. But um, this month, there is going to be a few Criterion episodes just to get us back on track. Um, the reason why I've put June and July together as well is that there was only actually one new spine number in July. So I'm going to do kind of a, I will kind of lump them in all together as it were. So just a couple of things as well that I need to make you aware of. I did actually record an episode yesterday with Joachim from the Film Man podcast on Shane Meadows' This Is England. Um, that will be coming out in the next, hopefully the next couple of weeks when I get some time to sit down, edit and add some clips. And also the Bond retrospective is going to be continuing this Sunday with a look at the man with the golden gun. Now, I really need some audience help with this because if I fall behind on Bond episodes, I need you to harangue me and hassle me to put them out. So I'm going to try and stick to, from now going forward, every Sunday bring out a new Bond episode if I don't and I fall behind please feel free to email me and nag me to get my arse in gear and get those shows out because it's not that I'm not enjoying doing the Bond episode but I'm sort of, I, I want to kind of push on through them and get another retrospective underway so do feel free to hassle harangue and abuse if I fall behind on that front so without any further ado I'm going to get on with the June releases and the first up is spine number 608 which is a spine number which if we were going to do these kind of chronologically, this goes back. Um, this should have come out a, a while back, actually, but um, it actually came out in June, and it's How Ashbury's Harold and Maud. I should like to change into a sunflower, most of all. They're so tall and simple. What flower would you like to be? I don't know. One of these, maybe. Why do you say that? Because they're all alike. Oh, but they're not. Look, see, some are smaller, some are fatter, some grow to the left, some to the right, some even have lost some petals, all kinds of observable differences. You see, Harold, I feel that much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this. Yeah allow themselves to be treated as that well i think it's fine building jumbo planes taking a ride on a cosmic train switch on summer from a slot machine the 70s were my favourite time for films and I can't think of another decade packed with such goodness. It was the age before the pre-lobotomisation of the Hollywood blockbuster. We had the likes of Jaws, Close Encounters, Star Wars, The Godfather, to name but a few as well as the auteur classics like The Conversation, The Last Picture Show, The Deer Hunter. 
It remains the most represented decade in my film collection, and every now and then I discover another work from this decade which takes me by surprise. Hal Auschby's output of the films in the 70s is near perfect. I've not seen his first film, The Landlord, but I have seen The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home and Being There, all of which I'm very fond of. Ashby was one of the great rogues of cinema whose behaviour and attitude would fuel the imagination and indeed heavy doses of creative licence in the case of Peter Briskin's novel Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. To me, he's one of those directors who belongs in the 70s. Hollywood from the 80s onwards was simply not the place for the likes of Ashby's and his contemporary John Cassavetes. Harold and Maud will be the second film of his career and it's to date the only film to feature in the Criterion Collection or I would wager it will not be the last. Written by Colin Higgins who had also produced the film, originally he wanted to direct the film himself but it would be Paramount boss Robert Evans who chose Ashbury after being unimpressed with a 77,000 directorial showreel Higgins had made. Higgins would go on to have a hugely successful directing career starting in 1978 with Foul Play, a Goldie Horn and Chevy Chase film, I've never seen it, and an even bigger hit of 9 to 5 which starring, you guessed it, Dolly Parton. And clearly the pair liked working so much together they made The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Burt Reynolds in tow before his untimely death at the age of 47 in the 80s. Other figures of note include Cat Stevens on soundtrack duties and John Alonso as the director of photography who would go on to do the De Palma Scarface remake, Star Trek Generations and of course the classic exploration of Men Under Fire and Charlie Sheen and Michael Bean masterpiece Navy Seals. As a title role of Harold is played by Bud Court, who if you're wondering where you might have seen him, he plays the arsehole diner owner in Heat. Maud is played by Ruth Gordon, who of course won an Oscar for a role in Rosemary's Baby. And Vivian Pickles plays Harold's mother called Mrs. Chasm, who was something of an obsession with getting her son on the straight and narrow. So what is the film actually about? Well, Harold and Maud is the story of two lost souls coming together and falling in love. Harold is a 20-year-old who likes to torture his mother by pretending to commit suicide all the time in a variety of imaginative and entirely realistic ways. His mother is determined to find a suitable girl for him, so he arranges a series of dates and they're at their house, as well as trying to have him psychoanalysed, as well as hoping his uncle will talk him into joining the army. Only Harold finds a suitable woman whilst partaking one of his favourite hobbies, attending strangers' funerals, where he runs into Maud, who shares some of his same passions. Maud is independent-minded, still cars for fun and lives in a train carriage. The, fa- the two fast become friends and then lovers. Owen Maud is 79 years old. The trials of late adolescence and early adulthood are familiar territory for filmmakers. The Graduate, Rushmore, Harold and Moore are the types of films that I would guess can only be made by people who have the benefit of hindsight to articulate and process the experience of younger years. Made in 1971, it's very much the product of its time, in that gone is the idealism of the 60s to be replaced with a more cynical and indeed pessimistic outlook. Harold does not wish to conform to the expectations of his mother, yet he has no idea what he wants to be and his purpose in life actually is. He has no cause, just himself. It's nihilism to an extent and I sort of think Ashby and Higgins actually think this is not such a bad thing. Why should you have to believe in something? What is wrong with just being and doing what you want? After all, no one is really ever getting harmed. Maud, on the other hand, embodies all the youthful abandonment idealism of the 60s counterculture movement. She's still calm, she couldn't care less about the law, and is not weighed down by existential ponderings at her place in the world, or indeed, outwardly at least, 
enraged or angry by life. Harold and Maud's relationship is treated with scorn by the authority figures in the film. The psychoanalyst believes Harold to be mental, the priest thinks he is sinful, his mother is aghast. Yet Higgins and Ashby, by removing an overtly political subtext of the film, tap into something far more humanitarian about their relationship. They are happy together. Through Maud, Harold sees the world differently. When asked what type of flower he would like to be, he tells Maud that they are all the same. Her reaction is one of the most moving moments in the film when she tells him that they are all different. It may, may not be a subtle allegory, but it is a defective nonetheless. Being your own person and doing what you want is the true path to happiness. Authority in the film is not quite what you might expect from a piece of counterculture agiprop. Howard's mother is not evil per se, she does not pack him off to boarding school in Switzerland, she just simply doesn't understand her son. Likewise, his military uncle is not General Patton, he's just a bit overly keen and clearly cannot see the fact that Harold has all the military potential of Oliver Twist. There is no system or evil empire or rednecks or people abusing him in the street to contest with. It's moreover the case that these two lost souls have come together through mutual affection and understanding. Harold's elders might not like it, but he's going to carry on nonetheless. It's not an angry film, I would say, and although its ending might be quite sad, there is a sense that Harold has come out the other side as a changed person. His life has a sense of purpose, or at least he can see the wonder of it. It is therefore, in my mind, a film that speaks against the expectation of conformity. You can take this message and apply it to virtually any person who feels that they are expected to do something as opposed to actually wanting to, and I dare say that plays a large part in its continued appeal. One aspect of the film that really worked for me was Ashby's direction. Oddly enough, it wasn't until a few days later that I had time to think about the film. Did the, the I suppose the genius of his work kind of really sort of sink in? The grammar and style does not really draw attention to itself. Rather, it lets you soak in what is going on in the frame through the interaction of the mise and the scene. In one such scene, Harold places his hand and eventually his head through a sculpture that looks a little like a vagina. On the one hand, he is simply interacting with an object. On the other, more deep level, he's acting out an actual rebirth. All, of course, in the presence of Maud, who invites this kind of conversation. Fans of Freud would have to love it, I suppose. Yet Ashby doesn't make a big song and dance about it. He simply lets it play out as if it was a very natural moment in the film, part of the organic nature in which the scenes unfold. He also gives the film moments of surreal humour. Maud sits playing a piano, singing, and then suddenly gets up and starts dancing around. You may not even notice or register the fact that the piano continues to play despite the fact she is no longer sat at it. We don't have the keys playing themselves like some kind of fairground attraction. Instead, Ashby just allows it to unfold as if stopping the music would somehow spoil the fun for Maud. He also layers the image superbly for dramatic effect. There are multiple occasions when we have action in the foreground and background. For example, when Howard Mum has invited a possible suit around, Howell leaves the scene only to appear outside, framed through the window where he calmly sets up one of his fake deaths and appears to set himself alight only to reappear as the horrified suitor looks on aghast. This style gives many moments an almost dreamlike quality. Scenes are often surreal in nature, absurdist, but it's firmly in keeping with its quirky charm. DOP John Alonso gives the film a slightly subdued haze. Oddly enough, I felt the film was a peculiarly British look to it. It doesn't say the picture of postcard America we often see. It looks quite dull and overcast. And it was that that really kind of reminded me of the scene that I see outside my front door most mornings. Shot in a 185 ratio, it does benefit from the height the format gives. Harold's house feels large and cavernous, yet there's also at times a grand scale to the film. During a scene in a military graveyard, we have no idea Harold and Maud are actually standing in such a place until the camera begins a slow zoom back. 
The image comes filled with white gravestones from the subtle to the truly awe-inspiring. It's an incredible piece of directing and photography that helps elevate the film to something quite special. Conaghan's screenplay is truly an original. In today's world, it's easy to see its influence, especially in the works of Wes Anderson. What it does accomplish, though, is to be quirky and not annoying. It doesn't have the look-at-me moments that so many lesser films like this of this ilk have. In short, it is not forced, which is more impressive given the nature of Harold and Maud's relationship. Of course, it's helped by Ashby's direction, but it's the finer moments that got me. The moment you realise that Maud is a Holocaust survivor or the scene after they sleep together. There is no fanfare, just natural moments that, although minor, add so much to the story. I think it's hard to place the film in any particular genre, which is really as, as high a praise as you could bestow upon a film, in my opinion. It's most definitely its own entity, a black romantic comedy that is funny, touching and outright bizarre at times. Perhaps the trump card, though, is in the casting, especially as Court and Gordon. A script and story like, like this won't work unless you have the actors playing them or are able to nail it, which both do. Court is no looker, his wide eyes and morose look don't have the normal star appeal. But with this material, Harold comes alive. He is not annoying, as can be the case sometimes. Instead, we are able, through Court's performance, to identify with a young man in love with a near 80-year-old woman. Gordon, however, does steal the show. Although you would not want her as a lover, she would be a great person to know, doing things that truly you would never dream of doing, like stealing cars again or pissing off the police and acting the way exactly how she wants. Gordon makes you love her and crucially feel the sad longing just underneath her cheery exterior. Roby's baby may have got her the Oscar, but this is the performance by which I think she should be remembered. The film's other star really is Cat Stevens. His music is perfect. Indeed, it's hard to imagine the film without his songs. The images and stories are a perfect mix for Stevens' folk-based numbers. Indeed, this is one of those soundtracks that I would have to call seminal, not only because of the brilliance of the songs, but one of the few soundtracks whereby popular music seems to be the best option, truly over an original score. Despite testing well, the film was not a success. It would take the passage of time to cement its place in the heart of cinema goers and critics alike. But it's often the case when a good film will always find its audience over a passage of time. Now, whilst I was watching it, I was, I was a little unsure how I felt about it. And a few days later, I think I came to appreciate the film a lot more. I don't personally think it's a classic. I, don't, I, I know it, it seems to have that title of being a cult classic or, you know, I still think that perhaps the word classic is um, somewhat hyperbolic. I did really enjoy Harold and Maud, and it might well enter the Pantheon as one of my uh, most appreciated films of, from the 70s, but for the moment, I'm just going to say I really enjoyed it, although I would say, if I was being completely honest, that it didn't quite live up to the expectations and the hype that I was led to believe would have me falling over all over it with adulation but um, I would just say a word about the blu-ray of the film the picture and sound are pretty fantastic another great restoration work by uh, Criterion there's a really good commentary on it by Hal Ashby biographer Nick Dawson and one of the producers um, also you get a interview with Yosef Islam or Cat Stevens as he was known as and there was a pretty interesting booklet as well that accompanied it so overall I think it's a pretty good package and if you are a massive fan of Harold and Maud I think this will be the addition for you to get because um, as I understand the DVD that was put out of the film a few years back the transfer was pretty rubbish and I 
I'm led to also believe that even if you pick up the DVD, it's uh, still pretty a massive improvement over that edition. Okay, so next up was spine number 615, which was Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. Now, I'm going to have to make a confession here. I did buy this film on Blu-ray um, for completest reasons and completest reasons only because I have a confession to make, which... Now, I'm not going to do an arm and white on you here. I am not going to try and justify an idiotic standpoint with some quasi-intellectual bullshit. I'm just going to get straight to the point. I absolutely despise Charlie Chaplin. I think he is about as funny as there being a knock at the door, opening the door and then someone smashing you in the face with a plank. I don't think, I cannot possibly work out why this man was so popular at the time. I just cannot see it. That stupid tramp routine is so irritating and fucking galling to watch. I cannot stand watching those films. And I know that is the equivalent, perhaps, of me sitting here saying that Orson Welles is shit or something like that. Well, I'm not saying Charlie Chaplin is not a tremendously gifted performer and director. It's just that his films do absolutely nothing for me. I have never laughed once watching Charlie Chaplin. There was a brilliant episode of Blackadder Goes Forth in which Blackadder, I think they're forced to put on some kind of pantomime or something like that, and uh, everyone's obsessed with Charlie Chaplin, and Blackadder actually sends a telegram to Charlie Chaplin, and he just says one simple word, stop. And God, I wish he had stopped because, again, I've got the other um, Chaplin entry in the Criterion Collection. I think it's Modern Times, but I was literally almost on the brink of tears having to pay for this. And of course, I did watch the film and, you know, it's a story of, you know, the, the tramp, you know, what everybody called, goes to um, a small town in search of prospecting and trying to kind of hit a hit rich panning for gold or what have you and some hilarity ensues but really I was just sat there completely disinterested and I could have this thing I could admire and I can appreciate the how good a director he was technically the way he sets up kind of these these gags it's all you know it is very clever it's in in a way it's kind of brilliant silent filmmaking but it just does absolutely nothing for me and, you know, you can appreciate film, for example, Andrei Tarkovsky, you know, I, I can watch Solaris and I can appreciate it. I wouldn't say I can enjoy it, but I, I, I can certainly get a lot more out of watching those types of films. And I can Charlie Chaplin, The Gold Watch, because you know, the primary kind of purpose for these types of films is to elicit a reaction, i.e. laughter from the audience. You know, And they do have messages, you know, they're not just sort of the, they're not just superficial uh empty films you know certainly you know, there is some kind of um commentary going on in there but it just never it's just never really kind of worked for me and i perhaps it might be something that comes with age i think it certainly helps i know a lot of people who like charlie chaplin it certainly helps when um they had kind of like you know their, their dad was obsessed with those types of film and they were kind of you know watched them as a kid and they sort of grow up on them i never had that i just sort of my only uh, exposure to Chaplin came when I was at university and we watched a few of his films and I, even then they didn't really do much for me but I'm not really going to go 
into the gold rush because I, I just I simply haven't got anything to say about it which I could kind of add to the debate and I don't again I don't want to fall into the trap of sort of trashing this because it's like if I sit there and say you know I found it really unfunny and the gags really funny well it's just my opinion and I think sort of really the weight of um appreciation for Charlie Chaplin is certainly more in favour of those who really love him and who really enjoy and respect his work and certainly I do respect his work I just simply don't enjoy it and I don't really sort of because obviously the I got a bit behind on these shows I didn't really want to spend 20 minutes talking about a film which I didn't really like and essentially what you end up doing as well is you're criticising something which you know is good yet in fact brilliant at times almost but you just I just couldn't muster the passion to do that so I will talk a little bit though about the blu-ray which I think I can only kind of relate this to a story when I bought Sunrise on blu-ray and I bought it in a store called HMV and when I put it on the counter the guy looked at it and he said is there any point in buying these types of film on blu-ray and I I just looked up at him and I thought, one, what a you know, stupid thing to say, bearing in mind, HMV is kind of like constantly teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. You know, someone's actually physically spending money. And then secondly, I sort of thought to myself, you, know, you clearly know nothing about what Blu-ray has done to bring to life, again, films from the past. And certainly the transfer for this film, and there are actually two versions. There's the 1925 silent version and the 1942 sound version. I didn't watch the sound version, I have to be honest with you. Um, I thought to myself if I really kind of don't like watching the silent version I don't think the sound version is going to do very much for me but there has been a new um, 2k digital transfer has kind of really sort of brought the film to life again they've also done a enhanced 5.1 surround sound track to it which again was uh, another one of the ones where they've sort of you know created these sort of from mono sound and done a really good job as far as I'm concerned in creating a quite immersive 5.1 experience there are some good documentaries on it. There's Presenting the Gold Rush, which traces the film's history. Um, and it features people like kind of Kevin Brownlow, who is a real kind of champion, unsung hero, really, of modern cinema, Kevin Brownlow. I'm going to do an episode on him one day because um, other than being a kind of a great scholar of film history, he's also made some pretty decent films before. So I will be doing a special on him. And there's some other things as well, you know, a, a documentary about the visual effects. And again, you know, it's it's interesting to watch uh, programs, sorry, documentaries about special effects that were done in the 20s, but obviously, you know, we think of special effects as being something quite new, or particularly digital effects, but they've been around since the birth of cinema, and that was quite an interesting little documentary. And also, there was a pretty decent essay, um, which was a review of the 1942 re release, which was uh, in there, and that was quite another interesting read because. I've actually, um, if you, I, I spoke about it before, I actually signed up to the Sight and Sound uh, subscription, online subscription, and you get all these um, copies going back to the 30s, and you can read sort of contemporary reviews of films, and they always make for very interesting reading, because it kind of gives you a perspective of how film criticism has changed in the past, and I, I, I do implore anyone really who has a even the slightest interest in film history to uh, pick up as many sort of older reviews and contemporary reviews because they do offer quite an enlightening, enlightening, sorry, perspective into how trends have evolved over the years. But overall, you know, if you love Charlie Chaplin, this is going to be a Blu-ray you will save. If you're like me and you're just a completist, then 
you know, you'll enjoy. I, I enjoyed the special features. I could appreciate the filmmaking. I appreciated um, just from a kind of a film preservation point of view, really, what they've done with the transfer. But I was so, but I simply really couldn't muster the energy to um, talk very much about the film itself. So I think it's one of those where, you know, like I said, if I um, suddenly develop in my later life a appreciation of Charlie Chaplin, I might come back to this. But for the moment, uh, I'm going to have to sort of say thanks, but no thanks. Do um, get in contact and uh, tell me your thoughts on Charlie Chaplin as well. Um, I'd be interested in him because I want to uh, basically... I. I will leave it to other people to convince me why I should get into his films. But Spy Number 615, The Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin. Um, if you're going to get it, get the Blu-ray. Okay, so next up was Spy Number 616, which was Danny Boyle's directorial debut, Shallow Grave. Comfortable, Cameron? Yes, thanks. Well, tell me, Cameron, just tell me, because I'd like to know. What on earth could make you think we'd want to share a flat like this with someone like you? <laughs> I'd like to ask you about your hobbies. Why do you want a room here? Do you smoke? You must be Hugo. So, I can have the room? Yes, you can have the room. Yeah, Hugo, can you open your door? Alex, what are you doing? I'm just looking. Don't. Don't look. No. It's not every day I find a story in my own flat. It's not a story, Alex. It's a corpse. It's a sick idea, Alex. It's sick. Well, go ahead, then. Telephone. Telephone the police. Tell them there's a suitcase full of money and you don't want it. I can't do it. It's been a struggle, but now our days of worry are over. To love and to happiness forever. And the other three people living in the flat? There are only two other people in the flat. Make a note of that, Mitchell. Only three rather than four. They know. So they know. He's right, Alex. They know. You're frightened. I'm not frightened. I'm a little terrified, maybe. They went up there alive and they came back down dead. You're looking for me? If you can't trust your friends, well, what then? What then? Now, Danny Boyle he has... I think the Olympics has cemented his uh, position as one of kind of England's greatest current exports. And I, I, you know, looking back over his films, he's the type of filmmaker who I would just love to be. You know, here is a director who makes Slumdog Millionaire, a film that was going to go straight to DVD. It gets a cinema release, becomes a huge box office success, wins loads of Oscars, and he must have had the world of cinema at his feet. And what did he decide to do next? Not he didn't sell out and go and jump on some franchise. No, nope, he went and made a film he had been looking to do for many years, which was 127 Hours, a small intimate story about someone with their hand stuck under a rock. He is a director who always seems to 
try and do something different. He's tried everything from science fiction films to zombie films to films about people taking drugs. He is everything someone like Brett Ratner isn't. He seems to have kind of an ambition and a desire to really kind of push himself with every single project that he does. Now, I had never seen Shallow Grave before I picked it up on Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection. And before I begin my review of it, I have to go back to a film I watched earlier this year by Paddy Constantine, uh, Tyrannosaur. Now, I was really looking forward to seeing Tyrannosaur. It had Peter Mullen in it, and of course it was written and directed by Constantine. And I started to watch the film, and within the first five minutes, I was completely lost by it. There was something happened in the first five minutes of Tyrannosaur that made me despise the central character so much that throughout the entire film I was unable to get over the fact at what he had done. I I simply did not care, to put it quite bluntly. The character could have invented a cure for cancer and I would have still thought he was a complete arsehole. Now, Shallow Grave suffers from exactly the same problem. And it begins with a montage of three housemates interviewing people for the vacancy to fill a spare room in their apartment. We have Juliet, played by Kerry Fox, David, played by Christopher Eccleston, and Alex, played by Ewan McGregor, who are the housemates. Now, their problem is this. They are absolutely horrible people. They are smug, annoying idiots, and they are the type of people who I absolutely despise. Now, this scene will come back to haunt them, their roles will be reversed to an extent later on, but the damage was already done. I hated these characters. I simply did not care or felt moved about what happened to them in the least. And you can have characters who you don't like, who you still root for. People like, you know, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, you know, he's an absolute nutcase, but you still kind of like the guy. These people, I just thought, you are absolute wankers of the highest order. Now, the premise of the film is a classic moral dilemma. The group eventually choose their new housemate, Hugo, played by Keith Allen, uh, father of Lily Allen, and one day he seems to completely disappear, so they decide to kick the door down of his room, and hey presto, he is dead on the bed naked. They find some heroin and some needles, and crucially, a massive bag of cash. So what to do? Well, herein lies one of the biggest flaws in the film. I've talked before about a lot of film criticism descending into nitpicking and, you know, plot holes and things like that, but I might even fall prey of it now because the obvious issue that I could find with this is the group decide not to report the body and to dispose of it and keep the money, but the simple fact of the matter is really that they could have still taken the money and reported the body. It, it, there was no nothing. Obviously, the, the huge bag of cash has been obtained by legal means, so it's not as if it's going to be kind of like on some kind of audit list somewhere. And they could have still have just kept the cash and given up the body. It seems so stunningly obvious that this is what they should have done, and there's no logical reason in the film for them not to have done this. I know the whole point, or as we see, the whole point of the film is the fact that they do sort of cut the body up that causes some of the action to, to happen, but I simply didn't get the need to do this. But, you know, of course we have to have that Hugo is, he is a criminal, he's a wanted man, and there's a subplot involving a group of nutcases trying to find him, 
and also there's another stupid subplot which is, involves the utterly ridiculous in police investigation who they're one of those they're those types of police officers they talk to everyone as if they are the prime suspects despite they having absolutely no evidence to back this up and again it comes back to that whole kind of um the role reversal that takes place in the first scene when they're interviewing potential new housemates but the money obviously begins to have an obvious toll on them. Julia and Alex are the main proponents of not reporting the body and enjoy the money for its obvious pleasures. They enjoy champagne, spending binges on stupid items. David, on the other hand, becomes paranoid. He, as well, having been the person who drew all the short straw and had to cut the Hugo's body up when they were deciding to bury it. Now, I thought the DiCaprio breakdown in the beach was ham-fisted. In Shallow Grave, it is possibly even less believable. David goes from being slightly worried to a total night to a total nutcase, living in the loft, drilling holes in the ceiling. As the various plot points converge, the gangsters searching for the money, the world's most obnoxious police officers trying to find out what's going on, the housemates try to screw each other over, and my mind began to wander. It's never a good thing when you're watching a film that for all intents a thriller, and you are wondering why one of your cats has developed an obsession with a square inch of carpet to the left of you. It's not because Shallow Grave retreads a familiar well-worn path where it made in the Hayes Code area its protagonist would have to be duly punished for their greed. The treasure of Sierra Madre springs instantly to mind. But what made those films an infinitely more rewarding exploration of greed and punishment was the fact that it allowed time for the characters to change and become corrupted, often playing on established character types. Shallow Grave, freed from any census or adherence to any moral code, makes the bold decision to start with flawed, unlikable characters from the off. After they discover the body, for example, they hardly bat an eyelid. Yes, Juliet is a doctor, so she's probably seen this type of thing before, but Alex just seems to dance around like a child. He has absolutely no horror or any sort of physical reaction to it other than thinking of himself almost immediately. David looks a bit serious. And that, you know, he is the one who will have to do the most grisly task of disposing of Hugo. Yet, real people would react differently in this situation, which is the crux of my argument against the film. Although David acts traumatised by having to cut the body up because a few lines of dialogue says he has to, in reality, it feels more like he is annoyed because it's cut into his busy schedule of behaving like a self-absorbed prick. The characters never feel they are worth getting to know or indeed behave like actual people as opposed to what the screenplay is telling them to do. Indeed, they seem to revel in the fact they are utterly devoid of any depth. What you see is what you get, and in stories such as this, I would contest it's crucial that we at least have one of them to root for. What the film lacks is a soul, a beating heart that binds it all together. The 90s were a decade of the downbeat, Seven, American Beauty, Train Spotting, Fight Club all resonate today because they are at their core. We may not like the characters or we might not like what's going on in the stories, but they at least make for fascinating vehicles to explore more nihilistic themes. Shadow Grave really should be a gripping, fun ride of skullduggery and double-crossing. Instead, it stumbled to a conclusion that felt half an hour overdue was neither revelatory enough to provoke, provoke a gasp of surprise or satisfying enough to revel in the demonic scheming of its protagonists. The fundamental flaw is its central logic, coupled with a group of people whose safety I could not care less about, made for a hollow, unfulfilling experience. When it was released in 1995, Shallow Grave was heralded as being the possible beginnings of a major cinematic force in Danny Boyle. Happily, this prophecy came true. The film was a modest hit and was followed by one of the most defining films of the decade, Trainspotting. 
Having never seen Shallow Grave before, perhaps my expectations were justifiably very high based on what I've come to expect from Danny Moore. And it does have his kind of kinetic directorial style, but it failed to ignite in me the same degree of enthusiasm that greeted upon its initial release. Although I wouldn't say I hated Shallow Grave, I certainly have no intention of watching it any time again soon, which is a bit of a shame because I was um, quite excited for this one. But, you know, everything I've said, you know, I can easily see why people would enjoy it. I think, um, you know, it's quite a bold film, I guess, to not really kind of concern itself with making you love the characters. But for me, it felt well short and has certainly been eclipsed by Boyle's later works. Okay, I did pick up the Blu-ray of this. Um, it has a decent restoration. Um, there's a 2.0 um, audio track. It does say surround soundtrack on the Criterion website, but I don't think 2.0 is uh, highly constitutes surround sound. Um, good commentaries with Boyle and John Holdren, producer Andrew McDonald. There are some interviews with Chris Eccleston, Kerry Fox, Ewan McGregor. Um, Digging Your Own Grave, which is a 1993 film um, by Kevin McDonald. I didn't actually watch that, to be brutally honest with you. And there's also some video diaries from the 1992 Edinburgh Film Festival. Again, I didn't really uh, watch those. But if you love the film, um, I think there is a region, a region B release of Shallow Grave on Blu-ray. And as I understand, I think it's the same transfer and audio. So if you... Um, if you were sort of umming and ahhing which version to get, I don't think there would be kind of any audio-visual um, dipping quality were you to plumb for the Region B release over the Region A release. Okay, so moving on next, and it is a Steven Sodenberg and Spalding Grey double bill of spine number 617, which is Everything is Going Fine, and spine number 618, Grey's Anatomy. You know, maybe I should just tell you some of the facts as I remember them. I got very disillusioned with theater and the lack of adventure in it and experimentation. So I just did a story of my day as fast as I could speak it. Joyce, who was running it, asked me who wrote it. I sat down at this table in front of whoever came. It was word of mouth. Maybe there were 15 or 16 people there. And it was everything I could remember about sex and death till the age 14, which was the name of the monologue. I was using myself to play myself. I was playing with myself. And I was hooked. I was hooked. It went through me like a thump, like a whoo, like a you know what. I kept a pretty tight diary for the facts, for the details. My uncle said there are two kinds of people in Barrington Island, those who belong and those who don't. I'm discursive. I'm associative. I couldn't spell. I couldn't write. I could barely read. I didn't know that had nothing to do with writing. mother committed suicide. Shall I do it in the garage? And the rumors were she died of cancer. There was no mention of suicide. Not dead, not killed herself. You know, again, that was avoidance language. And everything is going fine. Everything is going fine except for the squirrels, the gypsy moth, and a pig farmer named Rocky. Swimming to Cambodia. It was a radical, and I'd always been rooting for that breakthrough. It reached a larger audience, and I became more popular. I was told that I was manic depressive, was on uh, clonopin and lithium. I didn't think I could do another monologue. Being a dad is fantastic, very grounding, and it's got me out of myself because, believe me, their needs are bigger than yours. Forrest came to me very early on with questions about death. He wasn't even four. Everyone knows they're going to die, but no one really believes it. I like telling the story of life better than I do living it. One of the ways to reincarnate is to, is to tell your story. And I get enormous pleasure from that. It's like coming back. 
I suppose one of the pertinent questions is who is Spalding Gray? And although I'd heard of him before I saw these two films, I'd never actually kind of seen any of his work. And Spalding Gray was a performance artist who delivers monologues from normally sat behind a desk in which he riffs on all kinds of topics from his mother to his sexual liaisons. It is the type of art that, frankly, kind of doesn't hold much interest for me, um, which isn't to say I don't appreciate it. I just don't sort of actively seek it out. Um, it, it's a strange one for kind of sporting great because it's, it's, it's not sort of comedy as such, although it is very funny, quite a lot of it. Um, it's, I guess it's more just sort of, it's more really, I, I suppose, quite unique own type of things. And so here we have two films by Steven Sonenberg, who is a Criterion regular about the type of artist that Criterion just love to showcase. And what I mean by kind of like the type of art, uh, artist that Criterion love to showcase, this is someone who's kind of quite offbeat, who kind of doesn't, de who deviates from the normal. And I'm going to begin with the first spine number, which is 617. And that's 2010 documentary made by Sodenberg, Everything is Going Fine, which is about the life of Spalding Gray, told mainly through performances by the man himself. Now, documentary biopics are amongst my favourite types of film, and I like them even better when I don't know very much about the subject. I just find them infinitely more more interesting. Oh, and sometimes even, I suppose, when you do think you know someone, you watch a documentary about the real them, and uh, you find them quite enlightening. But what makes everything going fine such a unique experience is that what you effectively get is Spalding Grey performance that is also the story of his life. And why this works, and not to be dismissive, is that in reality his biography and life leading up to becoming um, a, a successful artist isn't really all that interesting. There's no sort of real battle against the odd. He kind of hardly sort of really changed the world either. He just sort of carved out a bit of a niche and um, became very successful in that niche. But I think what makes people like Sporting Grey so interesting, or to me at least, is that they do something that I could never do or would conceivably have a clue how to do it. And to be clear, again, it's, it's not stand-up comedy. It is humorous. Moreover, it's a series of monologues in which he talks about every facet of his life. You're not entirely sure how much of it's true or how much of it's part of a character he has created. And I sort of said about the, uh, the Woody Allen connection, it's very self-absorbed, self-deprecating, micro-analyzing every facet of life to give the impression that the modern world is a kind of a baffling assortment of existential trials. On the one hand, it's totally narcissistic, and indeed, that would almost be a requirement of the job for someone going so deep into their own neurosis. But far from seeming like someone who is simply self-obsessed, Gray manages to make his performance seem more about fundamental truths. In Gray's Anatomy, the 1997 film made by Sodenberg, which is essentially a kind of a filmed version of one of his monologues, he talks at great lengths about having an operation on his eye. Now, for anyone who has had or required some kind of medical procedure, it is impossible not to identify with the confusion and vague terror this sort of situation causes. Yet, as everything going fine unfolds, I wasn't quite sure if the monologues I was seeing are in fact about the real Grey talking about Grey or a partly fictionalised account of Grey being presented by Grey. Despite the interviews with friends and other artists and the man himself, I was a little unsure as to who the real man was and the overall focus of the film seemed to be on the performance interspersed throughout it. Before seeing the film, I was aware he was dead that by the manner of which um, Grey would eventually die seems all the more tragic given the affable person that we see in much of the film. Were I to be harsh in it, I think everything is going fine feels more like a special feature than it does a true standalone film. 
but what it does do is serve as an excellent introduction to Grey, which complements the next film, Grey's Anatomy, spine number 618. Now, essentially, again, this is a film performance of one of Grey's monologues. It keeps the same theatrical premise, him sat at a desk, although it is intercut with interviews with people relating to the central topic, the aforementioned eye surgery. It wasn't the first time this had been done. Jonathan Demme had done a um, film called Swimming to Cambodia, which was another uh, sort of a, a grey monologue turned into a film. And this was made in C. Um, Sodenberg's kind of post-sex lies videotape period in which he was experimenting greatly. And the follow-up film to this was Schizopolis, another Criterion entry, and one I beseech you to seek out. The question is, though, does this film version of Grey's performance work? And I would say, yes, it does. Using a variety of filters in different backgrounds, as well as projected lights and images, Sodenberg creates a sometimes hallucinogenic visual journey through Grey's stories. He recounts his experience of trying to find a treatment for his condition in his eye. Now, I suppose the danger here is to try to overanalyze and, comp and comment on what unfolds. Indeed, this film could almost be kind of a concert piece. It is even, or is it even a piece of filmed theatre? Whatever it is, Gray's quest to find a cure for his problem is often hilarious. He ends up as a seedy backstreet doctor somewhere in Asia. His doctors and friends just told him to get over it and have the surgery and he had other ideas and as the story unfolds you're glad he didn't take the advice because we would never have gotten this tale. I won't say too much more about it other than say that I think it's certainly one of those quirkier entrants into the Criterion collection. It's not going to be for everyone. I think this is certainly a very um, a niche film and Although I kind of I, I did really enjoy Grey's Anatomy, um, I wouldn't say perhaps it was a film that uh, I'm going to be kind of rushing back to anytime soon. Which isn't to sort of say um, I didn't enjoy it. It's just something which I think um, you have to be certainly in in, in, a, in a very particular mood to watch. But what I think um, there's the, the kind of the features and everything going um, fine. There's not really that many, but there is some great stuff on Grey's Anatomy. Um, there is a Another one of his monologues that's been filmed, um, A Personal History of the American Theatre, which was actually um, videotaped in 1982. Um, that was certainly worth watching. And again, this sort of comes back to this idea that these um, both these films sort of, because when you see that as well as an extra, you sort of see, well, you sort of think to yourself, well, that, that's how both these films sort of scenes, they do sort of seem like DVD extras, not so much films in their own right. I think it helps, obviously, that they were made by Steven Sodenberg. But I was actually really impressed with Grey's Anatomy. I did pick up the Blu-ray. And that was the high definition transfer and the 5-1 mix that's been done for the film. Because um, when I sort of said that, I, I felt this was kind of like perhaps a piece of uh, filmed theatre. It almost sort of felt like my, I've got a fairly decent sort of home cinema setup, and it sort of felt like an art installation. And that sounds horrendously pretentious, perhaps. But um, perhaps that's a better way of viewing these types of films um, as, not, as sort of being something more than just a... Uh, a straight film but I would really recommend um, both of these releases actually if you are interested in um, Spalding Grey and if you don't know anything about him uh, you know perhaps check them out the other thing I would say about Spalding Grey is that he has a very bizarre mouth and what I mean by that is when you see him talk he appears to have like one tooth that looks a bit like a sort of a vampire's tooth and it is actually he's quite a scary guy it's a shame that um He's still not around because I think he would make quite a good baddie. Um, you could sort of see him kind of turning up in a David Lynch film. I think that's how I, I how I was kind of thinking about him when I was watching it. But overall, two 
really good releases and um i should imagine these would be ones which i, I get the impression they'll probably you'll be able to probably pick these up quite cheap soon quite soon there sometimes that happens with criterion leases they sort of come out and then the kind of the price plummets and i think these ones might be um uh available for a pretty decent price quite soon if barnes and nobles has one of their uh, 50 percent sales i would perhaps recommend checking these out okay that was it for the june releases and as always I will do my recommendation of the month. It's going to be quite easy, I suppose, for um, July because we only had the one new spine number. But if I was going to spend my hard-earned cash on one release from June, I'm going to go with Harold and Maud, I think, um, with the caveat that don't go into this thinking you are going to see a film you are going to love as much as Rushmore. You'll certainly see the blueprint for films like that. But I, I certainly sort of think that, um, in fact, it might be because of sort of Wes Anderson now that, uh, and perhaps because I like his films so much that I was a little bit sort of not underwhelmed. But I didn't love Harold and Maud as much as I thought I was going to. But I certainly think it's the um, still a pretty decent film and uh, one that you will enjoy. And the other thing, I felt it sort of stayed with me for a few days, and I always think that's a good sign when you're. Uh, you're walking to work or you know, you're even at work in my case and you're sat there thinking about a film you saw a few days before and you can sort of pick up on the uh, the more subtle elements of it so that's my pick of the month Harold and Maud okay and that takes us on to July and this film will also be my recommendation for the month by virtue of the fact that it is um, the only film that came out that month and it's Aki Kurismaki's Le Havre okay so a crusty old timer takes pity on a young boy and decides to help him out. It's the stuff of art house crossover success from Cinema Paradiso to Central Station. Such films manage to bypass the cynical side of me that hates, well, nice things. And The Have Rate is no exception, a charming tale about one man and later on his entire community helping a young African immigrant boy get from France to his family in London. Now, Europe has in the past 20 years had a great had to do a great deal of soul searching on the subject of immigration. In 2011, 63 people died in the Mediterranean after their boat was simply ignored, including NATO ships from all countries such as Spain, Italy and Britain. Quite simply, no one wanted to help and 63 human beings died. The subject often reduces people to be referred to as them or cheap meaningless statistics and is a debate that draws massive amounts of attention. All sides of the debate face accusations from them of being simply the voicing of extreme left or right wing views, when in reality there are valid points from both camps, although trying to have a reasoned debate is near impossible, as experience has taught me. What we are left with, though, is something fundamental. Human beings left in extremely vulnerable situations, and it's perhaps is this that we often forget. Le Havre is director Aki Komisar's take on the subject, and rather a brilliant one at that, because he avoids wider political statements in favour of a more humanist approach, and that one that offers a glowing endorsement of the view that kind acts will be rewarded. If, perhaps, sometimes it might be a little too sweet for some people's tastes. Marcel Andre Wilms is a shoe signer whose office is the streets of Le Havre, a small coastal town on the English Channel. He owes money to just about everyone in the small world, from the baker to the local shopkeeper, and spends what little he money does have at the local bar. His wife, Arletti, is taken ill, whilst in hospital is diagnosed as being terminally ill. Marcel, lost on his own, is treated with kindness and humility by those around him, and when a young African immigrant called Idrissa escapes from customs bust, Marcel finds a new cause. 
The police and immigration officials want the boy to be found and send him to a camp for repatriation. Marcel wants him to get to England to be with his family. Enlisting the help of the town, Marcel is going to do whatever it takes, but with a local police officer on the case, he is up against the odds. Can he get interested to London, and what reward for his kindness will be bestowed upon him? Let's be perfectly clear, some people will absolutely despise this film. However, I would be more inclined to say it's a modern day fairy tale, and in that context it is a triumph. If, like me, you have a love for French cinema, then the have rate will score points purely on the basis of how it looks and its style. Along with regular DP Timio Salinan, Kurismaki makes the film a sparse, timeless looking film. Indeed, when I began to watch it, I actually was unsure if I put the correct disc in. I actually thought it was perhaps some kind of Jean-Pierre Melville film or something like that. And despite a town, Marcel's world is small. The streets, the shop, the bar, they're all within a very small space of each other. It is the perfect metaphor, really. His life is one from day to day, struggle and ritual. Kurismaki does not try to heighten the drama or emotion artificially. There's no cutesy music to accompany as he goes about his life. Moreover, he's just an old man who goes about his life as he always has. When Arletti's in hospital too, we don't see the, the filmmakers pile on the sympathy. Indeed, it is the restraint that Kurismaki employs that makes the natural drama and humorous themes of the film resonate so much. You feel for Marcel, not because the grammar of the film tells you to, because he's an old man who works hard and needs his wife around to make his tea and pour his wine. His aspirations are to be happy, and through Idrissa, he wants to make someone's life better. The situation and presentation are all you need. It's certainly in keeping with Kurosaki's style, yet it's still refreshing to watch a piece of cinema that does not telegraph the emotional interpretation of a scene with longing shots of the protagonists and syrupy scores. As the film unfolds and the community comes to Marcel's aid, I was reminded of the anti-Athorian slant some of the eating films have. Idris is not treated as one of them, instead he is treated as a human being should be, and one who is in need of help. The cynics will scoff and don't mistake this as a wider political statement. Idris may well end up somewhere even worse when he gets to London, but it is the intention that becomes a noble cause. One of the things that I often read and a lot of people are surprised because I'm such an atheist is the fact I often read the Bible and try to relate the teachings of Jesus to contemporary issues. If, for example, if a referendum were to be held in America that would decide whether or not the country has universal health care or continued with private medical insurance and all that entails, which one would Jesus vote for? Likewise with immigration. Would he approve of David Cameron's tough policy on immigration or would he be in favour of more countries doing more to help? or as I would expect, he would probably be fairly appalled at the idea of national boundaries anyway. However, the system in the Havray is not an evil one. Monette, the local police officer played by Jean-Pierre Duracin, is a cop on the case. He is not a vicious instrument of an oppressive regime. He is not a really horrible person. And more power to the film for doing this. The government is the will of the people. And in this case, the will of the people is that they don't want mass immigration. Yet Marcel and the rest of the town's decision to help reduce it is a collective act of compassion and understanding that transcends any political wider statement. In short, it is just what it is. People helping people. Now, I don't agree with the critics who have said that this is a statement film. Moreover, I think it is a humble, restrained, a feel-good film without the bombast. Now, that being said, I could see how some people would dismiss it as typical art house pap. The story is nothing new. The aforementioned kindly old man helping a young boy. The ending, which although wonderfully surprising, might be misconstrued as being sickeningly naive. The fact that it is so French, baguettes included, may put some people off. But 
I, cer I certainly thought that this was a, a kind of a joy to behold, really. I think um, every now and then I need a film which is just a nice film that I can sort of, you know, doesn't really have kind of massive overarching kind of themes going on. A lot of films sort of seem to serve up a lot of kind of big ideas, you know, films like Prometheus and to, I suppose, to another extent, something like The Dark Knight Rises, and they sort of seem to encourage the sort of discourse and then when you sort of dig deeper you sort of that that sort of begins to unravel a little bit and you're sort of slightly unsure if there was really much intention there at all and you sort of get these sort of you know fevered debates on things which i'm not even sure are actually there or not but something like the havre it's it's not a shallow film so to speak it's just a film i don't think that has sort of any sort of wider or kind of huge debates or discourse going on it's just a nice film that an hour and a half as well kind of breezes by it looks fantastic it's superbly acted and um certainly uh were there other releases this month i think i'd be sort of hard pressed for one of them to exceed this so it's probably good that it does uh it was the only one to come out in july and i can certainly recommend buying it because um it did actually it was it was actually released uh, theatrically this year in england and uh that we, we will fall into the criteria of being eligible to make my top 10 of the year and perhaps um it might just sort of be one of those outsiders to clip the sort of the uh, number 10, 9 or 8 spots. So definitely check it out. And also it looks gorgeous on Blu-ray. Um, really beautiful transfer. And I think, um, yeah, for fans of French cinema, there's a lot to, uh, there's a lot of nerdy things to kind of dive into. Lots, lots of the names of the people and things like that are references to French cinema. So certainly one for the enthusiasts there. Okay, so that's going to be it for this um, episode of the, of the Criterion Roundups on the 24 Frames cast. That was June and July's. August will be following quite quickly, so do stay tuned. And again, check out the exclusive page for this Sunday for the continuation of the Bomb Marathon. So many thanks for listening. If you want to contact me, you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at 24framescast and come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. And like I said before, um, try and help me with this kind of Ch Charlie Chaplin um, appreciation. I, uh, I certainly think that um, I might need to be convinced as to why I am wrong to despise him so much. But many thanks for listening and I will be in contact soon. Bye.